I'm really excited to be back today. Um, I guess about a month ago or so I was here, and I just really enjoy being here with you guys. I'm going to invite you to stand with me and turn to the book of Ephesians, if you would, chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Our study today will be in Genesis 29, but I'd like to start with Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25 to set the scene, to give us the big theological uh, background, the theme of what we're going to be studying today. So Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, we'll read and then we'll pray. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. Uh, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Let's pray. We have a profound mystery before us today that the Apostle Paul has revealed. God, I pray that you'd open our eyes to that profound mystery. How Jesus' love for his church, his bride, us, the family here, Lord, God's love for us is reflected in human marriage to some degree. And in the same way, God's love for us, Jesus' love for his bride, is the template by which we live our lives and by which we love those that we're in relationship with, Lord, especially our spouses. So, Lord, I pray today that this mystery would be just unfolded before our eyes to give us more uh, of a Jesus perspective on how we live our lives. We want to see Jesus in this. So, Lord, open our eyes, open our ears to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to your church today. We pray this in Jesus' name, and amen. Have a seat, please. And as you do, go ahead and turn over to Genesis 29. Genesis 29, we're going to be reading of one of the saddest marriages in all of Scripture. It's the marriage of Jacob and Leah. Wait, wait, huh? Jacob and Leah? What is this guy talking about? It's not Jacob and Leah, it's what? Jacob and? Oh, you know the story. It's Jacob and Rachel. I thought Leah was just an accident, just, uh, you know, an afterthought, a consolation prize, if it were. What is she, why would you say Jacob and Leah? That's not the marriage. My friends, the, the title of our study today is Marriage in the Gospel, but it's really about Jesus. If you're not currently married, if you're not in a season of marriage in your life, please don't tune me out. It's not really a marriage lesson. It's a Jesus lesson. Marriage is simply the lens through which we're going to consider the love of Christ. So please don't tune me out. This is for all followers of Jesus. So as we look at the marriage of Jacob and Leah, we're going to reconsider every relationship that we're in and how Jesus applies to that. Well, first of all, here's the background. If you're not familiar with the story of Jacob and 
Leah and Rachel and that whole period of time in the Bible. Let me give you some background. We're jumping into the middle of the story today. In the beginning of the story, Jacob is the younger of a pair of twins. It's Esau and Jacob. Esau is the elder brother. Uh, God had foretold, even before the boys were born, that the elder Esau would serve the younger Jacob. Well, something begins with Esau's careless attitude toward his family legacy and his family's calling in the world. And you begin to see his heart turning away from God and turning away from his family. And at one point, he half-jokingly says to his younger brother, man, I'm so hungry, I would trade my birthright for that bowl of stew. And later on, Jacob takes him up on it. Now, that trade was probably made in jest, but in total seriousness, Jacob knew that this is what God was calling him to. Now, the way he went about that is a whole other story, and we could probably discuss his means of gaining that birthright. He had to deceive his father to do that. Jacob was known for doing things his way. Well, this will come back and bite him later. But you see, it's Esau, his older brothers, it's his, his carnal attitude towards life. He marries a couple of, of Hittite girls, some local Canaanite women, and he, he, he kind of enters into their lifestyle. And he's bringing grief to his mother, Jacob. And so it's at that point that Jacob deceives the dad and gets the birthright. And that causes Esau to fly into a deadly rage. He says to Jacob, if you're not out of here, I'm, I'm, taking, I'm taking you out. So Jacob heads for the hills. He runs. He ends up far to the east in a place called Haran. He goes to his uncle Laban's land, and, and there he meets the love of his life, his cousin Rachel. I know it's weird. I know it's weird. Back then, it was a thing. Kissing cousins. In fact, the moment they meet, they're kissing. It wasn't a romantic kiss yet. It was just that familial, friendly, you know, kiss that you'd greet a family member with. But pretty quick, they're falling in love and planning a marriage. And that's where we're jumping into our text. Go to verse 16, if you would. Genesis 29, 16. Here we go into the text. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. And the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. So he says to Uncle Laban, I'm going to work seven years for this Rachel. He had the hots for Rachel. Can I say that? He did not have the hots for Leah. The text tells us why. Because he was choosing his bride based on outward beauty. Rachel's standout feature was her beautiful face and her body. So like any young man, he's drawn to physical appearances pretty quick. But Leah, her standout feature is said to be her weak eyes. In the original Hebrew, they've try to unpack what that means a little bit. There's some different ideas. It could be that simply her eyes were unattractive, but other people say that it, it means that she just wasn't much to look at. She was weak of the eyes because she's just not much to behold. Either way, what a bummer for Leah, right? Can you imagine being Leah and having your name immortalized for all of eternity in God's word as 
the sister of weak eyes, whatever that is. She has an unfortunate role to play. She plays the role of the ugly duckling. But in her story, uh, we're going to see an important truth about the gospel. And we're going to redeem her story a bit this morning. But, but back to Jacob. So he's making that common mistake of youth, of falling in love with someone based on physical attraction instead of the inner qualities. Listen, my friends, as beautiful as Rachel is, her beauty is only skin deep. Her story reveals some real character flaws if you read through it. It doesn't mean Jacob shouldn't marry her, but the point is that he's not considering character. He's only considering outward appearances. Very critical. So here he is, completely enamored. So he impetuously declares, just so dramatically, so romantically, the extent of his love. He's going to work for seven years to pay the bridal price. My wife is here today, my beautiful bride. When I proposed to her, I was told that I had to offer her a ring that was worth two months' wages. Because that's what the diamond industry told me was the proper amount to express undying love for her, to really win her heart. I had to give her two months' salary ring. Uh, now, if Jacob was in my place, he'd have to offer, offer her his, you know, bride-to-be, a seven-year ring. I did the math. Call it half a million dollars. Ladies, if a, if a man offered you half a million dollar ring, that would seal the deal, right? <laughs> I hope not. I hope you're looking a little deeper than that, looking at character. Verse 19. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Oh, how sweet. So lost in love that seven years of labor just seems like a few days. What chivalry. What romance. My friends, don't draw any conclusions yet. We're going to see another side to Jacob. He's not so chivalrous. He's not so romantic. Verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife. My time is completed. I want to lie with her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob. And Jacob lay with her. And Laban gave his servant girl Zilpah to his daughter as a maid servant. So when morning came, there was Leah. Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? I've served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? So there we have some of the most shocking, some of the most hilarious, ridiculous words in all of Scripture. You might want to just highlight in your Bible and say, God has a sense of humor. One version reads this in the morning. Jacob wakes up. He looks over to his new bride, and, and this version says, Behold, it was Leah. I like that. Behold. It's like, ta-da. So Jacob the deceiver, he's known as being the deceiver because he deceived his own father. Well, Jacob the deceiver got deceived. The schemer got out schemed and Jacob got his own medicine. Laban has tricked Jacob into marrying Leah. And we're going to see why in just a moment. But first, just consider the life lesson. You know, 
think of Uncle Laban and his devious actions as completely underhanded and, and wrong and sinful? And, and surely, yes. Yeah, he, he pulled a fast one, and this, this was unkind. But, my friends, Jacob needed this lesson. God had a, a lesson he was trying to teach Jacob. And the lesson is this. You reap what you sow. You maybe have heard that lesson before. If you sow to the wind, you reap the whirlwind, right? Unfortunately, it's going to take Jacob a few more decades to learn the lesson. And he's going to have a painful journey to walk to that point when he's finally learned that he doesn't have to force things to work out the way he wants. He can just trust God to work out his plans and his future. Amen? Well, my friends, a lot of people will read this event of Jacob accidentally marrying Leah and waking up, and behold, it's Leah, and they go, wait a minute, this can't be true. There's no way this could happen. Let's just consider this event. It totally makes sense. First of all, Leah's wearing a veil, of course. You can't see her face completely. And she's wearing wedding garments, not the normal clothes she's normally wearing. Jacob is not recognizing her by her clothing. And my friends, you might not know this, but there weren't electric lights back then. Probably the best they had was, you know, candles and, you know, a fire. And it's only in the light of the morning sun did Jacob realize that he'd been with Leah. And there's one other factor probably came into play, and that was probably a lot of wine. You know, the wedding wedding feast. Verse 26. Here's Laban's explanation. Why did he do this? Laban replied, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Okay, so that's the explanation. Leah's the older sister, so she's entitled to be married off first. It's the right of the elder or the firstborn. Very simple. Do you think Jacob was shocked at this? Think about that for just a minute. When Laban says, hey, you know the cultural rules. The older needs to be cared for first. Do you think Jacob would go, who wrote that rule? Where did that come from? I've never heard that before. Do you think that would be Jacob's response? No, my friends. He knew the law of the firstborn very, very well. Because that's his own backstory with, with Esau. That he knew that Esau, being the elder, was entitled to the, to the rights of the firstborn, the double portion of the firstborn. That he would inherit the, the family legacy. That he'd be one of the patriarchs. It'd be Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. And yet Esau, God knowing in advance of Esau's careless attitude and his carnal mind, God said, no, 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 it's going to be the older that serves the younger in this case. And Esau squandered his birthright. But Jacob knew this very well. It's his own backstory. He should know that Leah should be taken care of first. Jacob had no right to mess with the laws of the firstborn. God never changed the rules. He, he, you know, in, in Esau's case, he had to make an exception, but the rules were take care of Leah first. You know, during those whole seven years that Jacob was pining away for Rachel, so romantically, do you think he ever once stopped and said, well, there's Leah waiting in the wings. I wonder who's going to marry her. And for seven years, he's looking over the horizon for the, her, her knight in shining armor. When, he's, when, is, when is he going to show up to take care of Leah you know, I'm sure it dawned on him that time was passing and she wasn't married off yet. He, he certainly noticed and would have thought and asked, what about Leah? Why aren't there any prospective grooms showing up to ask for her hand in marriage? 
thinking, man, why, why isn't Leah married yet? She's my cousin, just like Rachel. Who's going to take care of her? She's family. I wonder if I need to change my mindset here. Maybe I should marry her out of a sense of duty and responsibility instead of focusing on my own desires. Maybe I'm being called to set my physical attractions for Rachel aside and love someone who needs to be loved to put her needs above my own desires. Do you think that thought ever crossed Jacob's mind? No. My friends, though, Jacob, if he would have done that, he would have discovered a truth that so many people over the centuries who've been in arranged marriages, especially in the Bible, those people in arranged marriages have discovered an, an incredible truth, and Jacob would have discovered this, that if you treat your spouse with kindness and tenderness, even if they're a stranger to you, your heart will fall a course, and you'll, you'll foster a deep and undying devotion to each other. That the most stable and re- rewarding relationship, listen to this, is built on the mutual agape love that God has given to us. The, the most stable relationships are built on mutual, sacrificial love. Do you understand? That's biblical. That's the biblical love. But of course, that didn't happen. Let's finish the tale of verse 27. Laban says, finish this daughter's bridal week and we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. It might be a little confusing, um, but when you unpack the story in you know, original language, it's not that Jacob had to serve another seven years and then marry Rachel. He married Rachel after the bridal week was done, after the honeymoon. So he serves seven years. He ends up with Leah. He spends a honeymoon of seven days with her. And immediately he's given Rachel. And then he has to work those seven years to pay it off. You understand? That's important because I want you to put yourself in Leah's mind. She gets to spend a week with her husband. And the whole time she knows. He's just waiting for Rachel. He's just going through, he's just going through this. He's just tolerating this to get the one he really wants. How horrible for Leah. How terrible for her. By the way, Jacob now is willing to work, in a, in a sense, 14 years for his bride. So that half a million dollar bridal price is now going up to a million bucks. He's really invested all of that in Rachel. He's given Rachel basically a million bucks. What's he given to Leah? Nothing. Nothing. He doesn't even want her. Verse 29. Laban gave his servant girl Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her maidservant. Uh, Jacob lay with Rachel also and loved Rachel more than Leah. And he, he worked with Laban for another seven years. Verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved... He opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Without Jacob's love for her, you'd say that Leah's heart was as barren as Rachel's womb. That's that's the picture that God is painting here. That Leah, she doesn't get her husband's love. So she becomes, we're going to see in a moment, very fertile. She has kids like crazy. But she's barren on the inside. She wants to be loved. 
Rachel, on the other hand, has her husband's love, and she ends up barren. It's poetic justice. This lack of love for Leah introduces a theme that's going to dominate the rest of the story, this bitter competition between Leah and Rachel, as well as these maidservants that we've seen mentioned. And there's going to, they're going to become wives number three and four. We're going to have four women in this story soon. And these women are going to have children, and there's going to be struggles and conflicts between these kids, ultimately resulting in the son Joseph being sold into slavery in Egypt. That's where this is heading, this conflict. So now, that's the story. What's the lesson? Why did I share this with you? There's a big point here. Verse 30 says that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah, but then it says in verse 31 that ultimately Leah was unloved. Unloved. And that word basically like a strobing neon sign off the Bible's pages to me. I, what do you mean she's unloved? That should be shocking to you as you read that. This is a major problem. Not just for Jacob and Leah and the story in the Old Testament, but it's also a huge problem in terms of how we understand the gospel. We read this passage earlier today. Let me just, or earlier in, in our study, we started with this. Let me, let me highlight a few things from Ephesians chapter 5 that we read earlier. That in a mysterious way, marriage is connected to the gospel. Verse 25 said, husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. It said in verse 29, love your wife just as the Lord nourishes and cherishes the church. And then in verse 32, it's a great mystery, marriage is really about Christ and the church. Paul is saying that marriage is meant to reflect the love of Jesus for his bride, the church. I like to say it this way. That marriage is meant to be a picture of the gospel, and the gospel is meant to be a template for our marriage. You can quote me on that if you want to write that down. That's really good. Let me say it again. Marriage is meant to be a picture of the gospel. And the gospel is meant to be a template for our marriage. When you look in the Bible, and you see in different marriages in the Bible, you, you say, wow, what a picture of Jesus and his church. What a picture of God's love. You see a marriage, for example, Ruth and Boaz, where She's redeemed by a kinsman redeemer who covers her and redeems her and pays the price for you. This marriage between Ruth and Boaz, what a picture of Jesus laying his life down to redeem his bride. He's our kinsman redeemer, amen? So some marriages in the Bible are a positive example of Jesus and his bride. But then there's other marriages, not so much. These are a negative example. They're an antithesis. You look at Jacob and Leah and you go, ooh, what's going on here? This is completely unlike Jesus and his bride. This is a massive problem for us. It's especially troubling because Jacob is one of the patriarchs. It was through Abraham's family that the whole world was to be blessed, culminating in the birth of Jesus the Messiah from this family to rescue the whole world from sin. So as a legitimate wife, and Leah was a legitimate wife of Jacob, as a wife of Jacob, one of the patriarchs, she should have been thriving under his love, which was nourishing her. 
Jacob's love should have been nourishing his bride Leah. She should have been flourishing because that's what happens with the church. God's love for us makes us flourish. He cherishes us and we, we thrive in that. But instead, Leah was dying inside. You see this in the naming of her children. As you read on in the story, she has great fertility. She's, she's all these children to make up for that lack of love in her life. Her heart always longing for her husband, though. So she begins to name her kids. She names the first one Reuben. It means this. God has seen my misery, basically implying, but my husband hasn't. God sees, but Jacob isn't seeing anything. She names her second kid Simeon, meaning to hear. God has heard my prayers in this. Hopefully my husband will hear me. Hopefully my husband will lend his ear to, my, to me. She names her third kid Levi, meaning attached. His name means, I sure hope my husband will become attached to me. I'm bearing all these children for him. Maybe his heart will be knit with mine, but no, it didn't happen. Finally, with her fourth, fourth kid, Leah changes the tone. She says, naming her kid Judah, I'm just going to praise God. That's what Judah means, praise God. I'm just going to praise God. I've, I'm getting nothing out of this relationship with my husband. I'm just going to turn to God and look to him. This is sad. She's a child of the, the patriarchs, the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. She should be thriving in this, but she was not. I want to finish this morning by con con contrasting that story of Jacob and Leah to the gospel, how God works in our own lives. And listen here, and think of this. In the beginning of our story, we were Leah. Hope I got your attention there. Like, what is he saying? Follow me now. In the beginning of our story, we were like Leah. Not much to look at because of our sin. Pretty weak in God's eyes. Isaiah 59 says that our sins have separated us from God and hidden his face from us. So we can have no relationship with him. Because of our sin, God in his perfect holiness is unable to look upon us. Amen? In that regard, kind of a Leah. But God did choose to rescue us. He, choose, he chose to love us, the unlovely sinners, even when we were not much to look at. He had compassion on us while we were still wretched sinners, enemies of the cross, and in rebellion against him, he left heaven. He came to earth to seek and save the lost laying down his life for us before we even knew him. What happens next? Well, we start out as Leah's. But when we come to Jesus and we're saved or made alive, God doesn't leave us in that broken condition. He transforms us, amen? God transforms us by his love, by his truth, by his spirit. And he's bringing us into a relationship with him that changes us and, and transforms us to make us the new creation in him, living according to his spirit, not by the old man or the old woman, but by the spirit of God, we're transformed. Now, unlike Jacob, who overlooked the Leah and refused to love her, Jesus willingly chose the unlovely Leah, that's us, the sinners, by his love, and he transforms us into his glorious bride, that's the amazing part. We start out as unlovely, but in relationship with Jesus, we're transformed into a beautiful bride. He looks upon us, and instead of seeing Aaliyah, 
He sees a Rachel. He sees a Rachel. He transforms us into that Rachel by his love. You know, the amazing thing is the moment we turn to Jesus, he sees us as a Rachel. He sees us through the lens of his grace. He sees in us Jesus Christ. He looks at us through the lens of Jesus Christ and, and the righteousness of Jesus. And if he looks and says, this is what I'm going to transform these people into. I'm, I'm going to make them into the image of Jesus as disciples becoming more and more like the rabbi. So even when there's a ton of rough edges that still need to be sanded off, the moment we turn to God in faith, we become, in his eyes, a Rachel. Isn't that amazing? I hope you could follow that. Does it make sense? Okay, good. There's a principle for healthy marriage I want to share with you at this point. Something we learn from the gospel. Thinking about how Jesus looks upon his bride, the church, and how this transforms us. You know, the church is a radiant and beautiful bride in the finest linens, a treasure, a poem, a masterpiece, a pearl of great price, a temple, his own body. That's us. He only sees us and speaks of us as his radiant bride without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, holy and blameless. We're worth everything to him to win us. Not just worth a seven-year ring or a 14-year ring, but what did Jesus pay for us? Everything. His whole life, his body and blood shed for us. So my friends, looking to Jesus as our example, we need to choose to see our spouse as beautiful and handsome. Making our spouse our standard of beauty. The most beautiful person in the world is your spouse. That's what we learn from Jesus in his bride. Amen? Jesus never badmouths his bride behind her back. Aren't you glad? It's not up in heaven talking to the angels going, oh, did you see what those guys did today? Oh, my gosh. Why did I ever die for those people? <laughs> no, Jesus is not talking smack. No, he never complains about us. He only speaks words of grace over us. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? Looking at that example, you can also choose to only think of your spouse and speak of your spouse in positive terms. There's no condemnation for your spouse. Amen? That's the lesson of Jesus loving his own bride. You know, I think Jacob could have handled this whole situation a little differently. He could have loved Leah like Jesus loves us. If Jacob was imitating Jesus, the story would have been a little bit differently. When Jacob saw Leah standing in the wings and waiting for a husband to support her, Jacob would have stepped into her life and brought hope to her. Because that's what Jesus did for us. And Jacob would have chosen to love Leah regardless of her physical appearance. He would have looked past that outer appearance and seen what she could ultimately become when he loved her and cherished her properly. If Jacob were truly living out the family heritage, he should have laid aside his selfish desires and let Rachel go, given his full attention and devotion to Leah. You probably hate me for saying that. 
But it's such a romantic story, Jacob and Rachel. What about Rachel? That's not fair. My friends, we'll never know how God would have intervened in Rachel's story if Jacob would have let her go. What we do know is this, that Jacob persisted on dragging her into his drama, into the chaos of polygamy, into competition with three other wives, and she never enjoyed Jacob's love as it was promised to her. Who knows how the story would have ended if Jacob had loved Leah with a love like Jesus. But, you know, ultimately, you know, comparing the gospel to Jacob's choice of one sister over the other can only go so far because Jesus has unlimited love for all. Amen. He didn't have to choose one over the other. Jesus died for everyone. He loved the whole world. The church, his bride, is not a single individual. There's room for everyone who believes. Includes all the Leahs who are being transformed into the Rachels. By the way, something, I want to share this with those of you who are Christian leaders. Maybe, maybe you're an elder, a Christian leader. Uh, maybe you're in ministry. Maybe you have a home group. You work with people. Maybe you disciple people. You're working with others. Can I give you a little... Um, tip that I've learned in, just in my own ministry. When people come to you for counsel, especially married couples who are struggling and they come to you for counsel, what do we normally do first? When someone comes, they share the story of what's going on, the trauma that's going on in their lives. What do we, we immediately want to do? Give them advice. Tell them what to do. You've got to do this, 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 and this to fix this problem. Or it's going to, you, you know, this is a horrible problem. You've got to fix it. Do all these things. And we give them a list of things to do. And we call that counseling. We're giving them counsel. But I've learned something else. Before I tell anyone what to do in this situation, what's really needed is a change of mind. Changing one's behavior is not enough. We need a changed heart. That's where God's word come in comes in. So this is what I love to start with. I say, hey, can I, before we talk about what's going on in your marriage, what's going on between you and Jesus? Can you tell me about your relationship with the Lord? What do you love about the gospel? How did you get saved? How did God rescue you? What did he rescue you from? How have you been changed and transformed? Tell me everything you love about the gospel. Let's talk about Jesus together. And that's usually our first counseling session. We're just talking about Jesus. We ask, you know, how has God's love changed you? How, how does God see you? How did God forgive you? How does God speak over you? What does his word do in your life? How does Jesus pursue you? And we become kind of, once again, infatuated with the gospel. And then I ask, well then, how does that equip you to love your spouse better? How does that change your heart towards your spouse? If God loves you this way, how can you love your spouse that way? And you see, this, this works not just in marriage counseling, but any kind of counseling. Any kind of counseling. I named this marriage in the gospel. You could, you know, you could name this co-workers in the gospel. Or children in the gospel. Or your family members, your in-laws. How about, how about in-laws and the gospel? I hope that equips you. I hope that gives you some new ideas about how to share truth with people. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end with this. I'm going to leave you with a word this morning. I'm going to leave you with a word. It's actually two words. The words are just as. I think these are the most powerful words in marriage, and I think these are the most powerful words in any relationship. And really, really they're the key to Christian living. The words just as. What are the words? Just as. Jesus said, love one another 
just as I have loved you. Jesus said, be merciful just as your heavenly father is merciful. Accept one another just as Christ has accepted you, Romans 15. Forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you, Ephesians 4. Be imitators of God and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, Ephesians 5. My favorite is Philippians chapter 2, just kind of summarizing it. Have a humble attitude towards others just as Jesus humbly laid down his life for you. There's power in those words, isn't there? Just as. And then we read those verses earlier about marriage. That just as Jesus laid down his life for his bride, just as Jesus cherished his bride and nourishes her, that's how we love each other. Do you want a powerful, effective life that makes an impact in this world? It's simple. Look to Jesus, study him, know him personally, Soak in all the richness of the gospel and then, just as, imitate him. Let's see what God does through you to change the lives of those around you. Amen? Can we stand and pray together? Jesus, thank you so very much for the bottom of my heart, Lord, from all that we have, we thank you for the gospel. Thank you that you rescued us from our sin. God, we consider your holiness, the creator of all things, the maker of heaven and earth, who dwells in inapproachable light. And you chose to look down upon us, to love us, despite our sin. And Jesus, you came after us to lay your life down for us, to trade your life on the cross for us, to become your bride. The gospel is mind-blowing. It has won our hearts, Jesus. Thank you for the good news. Thank you for the transformation that is in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Lord, teach us what it means to live this out, to have a just-as relationship with others, with the world around us, Lord. Teach us how to imitate Christ. Make us more and more like you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.